Boss Boyle and the Importance of Work Last Part In his cabin where they brought P, Captain Robin introduced her to his companion, Professor Mouse, who said that P's wounds were recoverable if he could receive a transfusion of blood. The difficulty, he explained, is that the procedure was often itself fatal, depending upon the spirits of the blood that are received and how they affect the patient. Camille offered herself, but the captain in private explanation to the professor made it understood that her blood was unsuitable in her condition. Camille surmised what he said and wept in shame, feeling it certain that P would die now and feeling herself to blame. Professor Mouse explained that, of course, what is best is that someone who is kin to him could give blood, for he had found that most successful in transfusions. As it happened, collected in the captain's cabin were such friends of the captain, fellow traveling men who had been enjoined to the recent journey because of the opportunity to gamble at cards, with so many men seeking their fortune by employment, or by luck, or by any means necessary. And one of these stepped forward unexpectedly and said, I am his brother. It was Mr. Lynch, whom none had known to have surviving kin, and who had professed to have none. But Professor Mouse did not doubt him and told him to prepare at once, and so seated him beside his distressed and dying brother. Lynch had his blood drawn into a syringe and transfused to pee. Professor Mouse took eight large syringes full before seeing Lynch himself gone pale and stopped out of caution. While this procedure took place, the Adonis departed the pier as the sun set, out of their sight, behind a low bank of clouds. Camille sat beside P and stroked his hair and spoke quietly to him while Lynch lay in a daybed to recover from his transfusion. Lynch asked, You his wife? No, said Camille. Nothing was said after the Adonis passed into the bay beyond the river and into the dusk, made darker by the overcast sky. Nothing was said until the ship reached the channel of the bay. Then Lynch asks, what happened? Camille said, he saved me. A sudden, low, shuddering flash of flame across the sky, as if the instant ignition of the very gases of the clouds came out of the western horizon and spread everywhere over all the sky in a wave soundlessly except for the rushing of a great wash of air which like the ripple followed this flash and it startled her and she stood up and went out and joined the captain in wonder at the deck, where now a cloudless sky, instantly cloudless, from this sudden sheet of flame, 
revealed the infinite moonless night. And over the top of them, from rim to rim across this sky, the great rivering rush of meteorites silently illuminated long, streaking trails sharply against a purple sky. They fell silently in unending numbers. They fell silently in continuous streams, like knives, like razors drawn across the flesh of the night, seeping blood, wounds bleeding in their trails, a sadistic, orgiastic torture upon the sky. The sky silently screamed. But like two worlds, this one in marvel, that one in horror, while the sky above the bay showed a wide, glorious expanse of a transcendent, terrible possibility in an open sky. The wilderness beyond the open water of the bay was yet cloud-bound, darkened and ominous, like a cavern beneath the ceiling of these seething clouds, weirdly boiling gaseous masses, and there beneath it, in the shadow of it, the earth sparked to flame here and there, in rapid, fitful bursts, here and there, as perverse strikes of flaming lightning lanced down, infernal lightning shooting out of the depths of the clouds, but also, at the same time, there came leaping up out of the earth spirals of fire, rising from the ground to crash the cloud ceiling like spouting fire from out of crevices cracked by disaster, where it seemed the earth had broken open to the depths of hell, and hellish, liberal liquids of brimstone erupted up in telluric jets, suddenly shooting explosions, ignitions like red rockets, shot up and splashed against the low cloudy ceiling and glowering, the molten fountainheads fell back and splashed over the forest with dripping flame. Such shooting fires appeared in very many spots instantly, sporadically exploding everywhere in the wilderness, silently at first, distantly at first, but soon all who had crowded at the western railing saw from the ship that the fires in the mainland wilderness had gathered and mobbed and were racing together under this suffocating roof of swelling turbulence, exploding, leaping, and flooding its flaming down to the very shores where last lines of tall pines were silhouetted against their glare, spreading north and south as rapidly as those meteors seeded their fires and now heard not silent, heard roaring, devouring the wilderness and the world, and then seen arching voraciously into the air, torching the tops of dead or dry trees in bursts like kerosene, and thus they realized that fires in rising, swirling hot winds had completely enveloped all the homes and all the towns around, trapping all who lived in them, and like a tornado, 
wildly thrashed, plunged, and killed. Shooting flames reached, arched the very air over the water of the bay where they stood, and in places where the bay was narrow, they dashed into the far shore and ignited it. This night in town, over 600 perished, and the factory and all the town was utterly turned to ash. Only those who took refuge in water survived. This night, too, Chicago burned down. Camille's own home was among the few that were spared because her husband paced its garden and driveway and directed his servants surrounding the house to wet it and its environs with such water as they had, though the city's vaunted waterworks had failed the city at large. The following day, the Adonis returned to the remains of the town, finding Father Pernan on its barren, ashen shore, administering holy mass. The Adonis then became a hospital ship for those whose burns and injuries could be treated, and its cargo hold became a temporary mortuary for the greater number of persons who were destroyed, but were yet recognized and so given normal Christian burial. Coffins, however, could not be made, but the dead were buried in canvas shrouds. More than 300 bodies or partial bodies were buried in a single mass grave, persons who were not recognizable. The factory, the mills, the machinery all had vanished, vaporized, or left as featureless relics of distorted charred metal or heaps. Boss Boyle was not found. Such funds of Mr. O that may have been held in his fireproof safe were gone, as the safe was found fallen into rocks at the river, but found open, and all its contents were ashes. Camille, though still sick in her addiction, assisted Father Pernan in his ministry as an itinerant nurse and a comforter of the bereaved, and aided women who had children they could not care for by caring for them herself. She regretted she could not nurse the babies who needed milk. The Adonis stayed at the town for a week, but was forced to depart when supplies of food were exhausted. A traveling man, including Mr. Lynch, stayed to assist as they might. Professor Mouse joined Camille and the captain on the deck to bid them farewell as their friends stood upon the retreating pier of the ruined town. Lynch was called to by Camille and thanked again for saving his brother. He said nothing in reply. P did not become coherently conscious until they had docked at Chicago and Mrs. O had returned to her home. By the time that Professor Mouse permitted him to sit up and engage in conversation, they had left Chicago and had begun the slow route of canals to the great rivers that should return them ultimately to the Chippewa River and his home near the mire. P. would not explain his injuries to Captain Robin, who told him that Mrs. O. had also refused to explain. 
When they drove aground at Reed's Landing near the mouth of the Chippewa, P was disembarked. Captain Robin gave him a coin or two to help him home and handed him a suitcase, which Mrs. O had left with instructions that it be given to him when he was home. Upon the suitcase, which was strapped by two belts, was a gilded imprimatur, Boyle. The suitcase was difficult for him to carry because his left arm was now crippled and the bones of his right had mended badly. It was uncertain, said Professor Mouse, that he should ever be fit to work again. The leaves had long since fallen, and each morning there was frost. Still the tundra swan were in the slough by the thousands, and had not yet abandoned the north for its seasonal starvation. The clamoring congregation of so many, recalling his youth, his hunting with his father, the burgeoning of the will to live, heartened P, and he quickened his return home. P walked by way of Wabasha and took the ferry bridge there across the Mississippi. He got a ride on the dike road in the wagon of the peddler, who by chance had come to Wabasha to sell his wares. Feeling sorry for him, the peddler drove him several miles out of his way, all the way to his front door. P's little children surrounded him and danced and hugged his legs, and P's wife at the doorway, wiping her hands upon her apron, wept to see him. His father did not come out. When P asked, he was told his father had died. Who does not work dies, he thought. P took to bed, and his wife laid his newborn baby next to his face on the pillow. And long before dark, he fell asleep while touching it. And P's wife took up the baby to suckle while looking at him from the rocking chair and kept the children quiet. He slept until late morning the following day, and rising, asked his wife where his father was buried. He saw the suitcase on the table as he was passing out the back door to the grave and took it with him. Sitting under the leafless tree among the dead leaves it had shed, looking at the unmarked grave, he opened the suitcase as one of his little girls came to sit on his lap. In the suitcase there was a note, folded once. He opened and read it. I have learned to love the life that I have given me. I pray you may also. Yours, Camille. There were also two ledgers in the suitcase, the black and cheap one that Boyle had used for his daily entries written in pencil, and the formal, expensive ledger, which he always presented to Mr. O., the entries of which were always carefully inscribed with ink. P. inadvertently discovered that the amounts for supposed duplicative entries between these parallel ledgers were not identical as they should have been. K. 
Curious concerning his own accounts, he saw that in Boyle's daily informal ledger, he was paid $2 per day, as was promised him, subtracting quite a few dubious expenses. But in the formal ledger, all entries were precisely doubled. It was a moment before P. understood what this meant, for some truly honest men cannot make sense of dishonesty. P. put the ledgers on the ground and kissed his little daughter who hugged his neck. His crippled arm gave him wincing pain where his daughter had pressed against it in her affection for him. Who does not work dies, he thought. But he held her close to himself, and the two in their embrace said nothing to one another, but listened to the swan whistling as they flew in formation along the course of the near river. Getting up at last, he lifted the empty suitcase, but thought it strangely still heavy. He thought it was perhaps the weakness of his arm, but looking more closely became suspicious, and squatting before it, using his knife point, to coax up the edge of the inside bottom of the suitcase, he found that there was a false bottom, and that beneath it was a hidden compartment, and there he found $111,111, mostly in $100 bills. On the 4th of July the following year, Mrs. O. gave birth to twin boys. One boy grew up to look exactly like Boyle. The other grew up to look exactly like P. The two boys grew up bearing mutual animosity for one another. But that is another tale. State Banner, 1900, Class Motto, We have reached the hills, the mountains lie beyond. 